Welcome to the Life Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us for another hope-filled message. We pray that you're encouraged by this powerful word from our Sunday service. I can tell you, I love this morning just being able to pray over people and stand together. That's what church is for, hey? It's a beautiful thing. So I'm very honoured to be with you all again today. Uh, I do, I'm, I'm, as Pastor Luke mentioned, I'm a teaching pastor at our college, and if there's one way to uh, really put the pressure on, it's to say you're doing a two-week series. I'm used to eight weeks, multiple classes per week. So I hope you've eaten a big breakfast this morning because here we go. No, it's okay. I promise I'll finish in time. Uh, If you were here last week, I did what I love to do, which is to leave you all on a cliffhanger around uh, a Bible that came into my possession this year. This one here, I think we've got a photo of it on the screen. Uh, It's over 100 years old, and every time I pick it up, I pray it's not the time it decides to fall apart. Uh, This one here, and it was given to my great-grandfather by my great-great-great-grandmother when he left Scotland to move to Australia. And I mentioned last week that there are two inscriptions in the Bible. The first one from my great-great-great-grandmother, who gave, gave an inscription to bless him as he headed off overseas, not knowing whether she would ever see him again. There is kind of one other mark in the Bible that I'm not including in that. Above the Ten Commandments, there's a cross, uh, just like an, an X, which I'm not sure, could be taken one of two ways. It could be like, don't do these things, or no, don't like that, moving on, I don't know, one of the two. I'm trying to stick with the first, I think that sounds more hopeful. But there's actually one other inscription. It's the only writing in the Bible from my great-grandfather. And I don't have the story behind it. But the circumstances point it to being quite a poignant moment in his life. And this morning I thought I would share a little bit of that because... It's amazing how I've looked at what he's marked in the Bible and as I've started to do the research myself this week, how God spoke to him then and how God has spoken to me this week through this same passage. So I'm going to pray first and then I'll show you the inscription. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together, God, to be the church, to pray over one another, to stand with each other, to worship you. God, I pray today as we talk, this would not just be information, But God, you would speak directly to every single heart, whether in this building, whether it's south or north or online, that God, today we would come a little bit closer to knowing more of you. We ask this in the name of the good King Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, let's put that inscription up, that second slide. There it is. It's from the book of Ezekiel, which, to be honest, I'm not sure that's the most quoted book of the Bible uh, today. The, The Valley of the Dry Bones usually... It's like the key story that comes out. But this inscription is Ezekiel uh, 33. And as you might be able to read there on the side, the one thing in this whole Bible my great-grandfather wrote was, I give myself unto thee, O Lord, with a date. The 4th of December, 1941. Now, there's two things that I think that have happened that precipitated his response in this date in the Bible. The first one, as you'd be aware if you're here in New Zealand or in Australia, uh, you'll be aware of that that date was, comes two years after the Australia and New Zealand joined World War II. Now, my great-grandfather had, was a blacksmith by trade. Uh, he had practical skills. He did not pass those down. 
you can pray for me because I can't even find my way somewhere without Google Maps, let alone create things with metal. It's, it's a time. Anyway, uh, he was a blacksmith, and so he was actually drafted into World War I and was originally meant to be sent to Gallipoli where the vast majority of Australian New Zealand troops were actually killed in, in warfare. But at the last minute, he was shifted instead to the Somme in France where he worked and he was injured during the war but managed to recuperate and return. And 20 years later, roughly after he has returned, after he has built a family, he sees that the world seems to be on a cycle and going back to the same problem. Another world war, another chance it seems for the whole world to self-combust and to be destroyed. It seemed like the world was headed for destruction. We don't know what World War I did to him, but he never spoke about it ever, that experience. So we know it was a deeply, it had a deep impact on him. So that's the first thing we know from this date. The second thing we know from this date is that his oldest son, Alexander Harold Will, enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force two months before this. And I can only imagine what went through his mind as he thought about how he had escaped World War I and now his oldest son was going off to an unknown future. And my great-grandfather turned back to this Bible that he'd been given 29 years earlier, somehow made his way to this passage, and what he read in this text prompted him not to despair, not to curse God, not to give up, but to say, I give myself unto thee, O Lord. So today I thought what we would do is tell some stories. What is the story of Ezekiel? the prophet who wrote this? What is the story of my great-grandfather? What is my story? What is your story? Because we find all these stories in God's story. This passage, Ezekiel 33, like I said, it's, it's, not, it's not usually the first one I think of when I think of the book of Ezekiel. It's an interesting one. It's actually a bit of a warning. And in this passage, Ezekiel... Uh, Throughout these verses, Ezekiel is talking about, well, God speaks to Ezekiel about the fact that if there are people who don't heed a warning, then the consequences of not heeding that warning will fall on them. But if there is a watchman and the watchman doesn't heed that warning for the people, the consequence will fall on him. Not a particularly... Uh, exciting, inspiring passage to be like, woohoo, life's easy, let's go for it. Quite a sobering passage. But it ends this way from verse 10. It says, Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are, uh, sorry, and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Like I said, probably not the verse you're going to get cross-stitched and hang above your kitchen. Um, may not be anyone's Instagram bio, um, but this passage clearly spoke to my great-grandfather. And I've got to tell you, in the context of looking into his Bible and to reading it, 
God met me in these pages as well. And I want to share with you today what I found from this passage and the hope it has for us today, how this intersects my story, your story, and his story. You know, the Bible is sometimes categorized as an instruction manual. Um, Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly excited to ever read an instruction manual. Um, I mentioned earlier I have no practical skills, so I have to read the instruction manual. Um, Otherwise, there will be fire. Uh, but generally, I'm not inspired to read an instruction manual. Why? Because while it will provide direction, it's really more concerned with giving processes and steps and instructions. Um, now, if the Bible, which it does have instruction, but if that's all it was, it wouldn't really be enough to speak to life as we know it. All the challenges and concerns and everything else that we find in life. Um, the Bible is not just a book of wise sayings. It's not just a collection of cheerful thoughts, so it has those in there. But really, it speaks to something a whole lot deeper that affects every part of our lives. You know, I mentioned last week, and by the way, if you haven't listened to last week, please check it out. Um, We don't have time to recap it all today, but I'd really encourage you to to hear that and, and to take that in. The Bible contains a multitude of genres or styles of writing. We've got these huge cosmic visions. We've got letters, we've got laws, we've got prophetic warnings, we've got songs, we've got poetry, we've got all these things in the Bible, but the most common style of writing we find in the Bible is narrative, an account of what has happened. And the thing is that all with all these different genres, they all actually feed into this one narrative, this one story that we find throughout the Bible. The Bible is what we call progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. What does that mean? Uh, it means it is a revelation that progresses. It's a revelation that grows. If you want another term for it, it's an unfolding story. If you think about like maybe when you were a kid and you were playing pass to parcel and you start off with this one little parcel. I mean, it's different nowadays. Every kid, you know, when I, when I was young, just let, just let me be a, a bit senior for a moment. When I was young, there was no guarantee you'd get anything from pass to parcel. Stakes were high. You deliberately hold it as long as you could before you passed it on. Nowadays, every kid gets to unwrap it. It's fine. You know what? Go with God. Uh, But if you think of Pastor Parcel, every time you unwrap a layer, more comes away. There's sometimes a little gift hidden in between, more wrapping paper. It's in the same way the Bible is an unfolding story. The more we read it, the more that happens throughout time, the more gets unpacked and revealed. Um, And so let's talk this morning about what it means for what this unfolding story is. Because you may come to the Bible and maybe you've been reading it for years and you're really familiar with it and you absolutely love it, but let's be real, I would say most Christians feel some sort of shame or feel some sort of uneasiness about their Bible reading. Maybe feel inadequate in their Bible reading. And if I can give you one piece of advice today that will help you as you read the Bible is to understand what you read in context of the bigger picture. Take what the little part you read and see how it fits into the bigger picture. When we do that, it can speak to us all the more powerfully. Yeah. You know, the Bible starts with the account of Adam and Eve, the original two, the dynamic duo. Uh, we see from the very beginning from their lives that humankind was intended to walk with God and be in relationship with God. Not only that, they were created in the image of God. Now, does that mean that when we look in the mirror, we're like, that's exactly what God looks like. Six foot two, one and a half really, but six foot two. 
you know, all the rest. No, it means that um, we are created in, to reflect God's character. We have been designed relationally like God. Um, and yet, despite all this, Adam and Eve choose not to honor the fact they've been made in God's reflection. They choose not to trust God, but rather they try, try to do things in their own strength, in their own understanding. In, in essence, they rebel against God. They go, you know what? We're not quite sure on you. We want to do things our own way. In doing so, they bring separation between themselves and God, and separation not only for themselves, but for all their descendants to come. This failure to reflect God is a term called sin. Uh, you, now, if you grew up in church 40, 50 years ago, probably the definition of sin you were told was the fun that God doesn't like. Uh, that's not the best definition of sin. Sin is a failure to reflect God's character. It's to miss the mark. And the problem with sin is it's not just a one-off event, but it's a corrupting and infectious condition of the human heart. What a fun prognosis. A corrupting and infectious condition of the human heart. And it strikes the very centre of who we are. Now, I'm sure we are done with COVID analogies, but we've seen what a pandemic can do. We've seen how a pandemic can completely ravage lives and everything else. Can I tell you, the worst pandemic to ever hit humankind is that of sin. The one that corrupts the very centre of who we are and has a 100% success rate. And there is no cure, no vaccine, nothing. Now, God could have given up at this moment. And if I was God, I'd be very tempted to give up at this moment. But instead, what we see throughout the Bible is that God intersects with the lives of so many individuals and communities along the way. He doesn't just step back and go, well, too hard, they've messed up, they've chosen someone besides me, let's see how they go. But rather, he starts to speak to people throughout the Bible. He speaks to Cain and tries to warn him against doing what is wrong. He speaks to Noah and creates a way for humankind to be saved and to make a way forward. And as the Bible continues to unfold and unpack, we start to see how God intersects with these people and reveals himself along the way. That's what we mean by progressive revelation. As the Bible continues and God keeps reaching out and reaching out to humankind and talking to them, interceding for them, directing them, guiding them, etc., we start to understand more of who he is. So let's jump back to this passage in Ezekiel and see what's going on here. Uh, Ezekiel's found in about the midpoint of the Bible. It's about halfway through the narrative, so it's kind of a perfect point to pick up what has gone before, but also what's to come. Uh, and you know, this should have been the highest point of Ezekiel's life. Ezekiel was born into a tribe of people called the Levites, uh, and they got to be the priests in God's temple. So from the ages of 30 to 50, if you were born in this family, you got the honour of dressing in the priestly robes, of um, being able to serve God in his temple. What should have been the best moment of Ezekiel's life is actually the worst. You see, some things have gone on between Adam and Eve until this point. It started well. There was a descendant of Adam and Eve, a guy called Abraham, who God picks out and makes a covenant with him. Now, that word covenant you may have heard before. Let me give you the Ben definition. A covenant is a mutual lifelong agreement or contract founded in relationship. A mutual lifelong agreement or contract founded in relationship. In fact, we see God seal the covenant with Abraham uh, in the Old Testament. I think it's Genesis 15. 
And typically what they would do at the time, because there wasn't a whole lot of, um, you couldn't just print off a contract and sign it with a ballpoint pen. Uh, so the way of signifying the importance of a contract is you would get a whole bunch of animals, you would split them in half, sorry to everyone who's vegetarian, you would split them in half, and then the two of you would walk through them. As a scientist say, if I break this contract or agreement we have made, may I end up like these animals? So next time you're reading Genesis 15, it's not a spontaneous barbecue. Uh, it's, it's, it's a pretty significant moment. Here's the thing about that moment in Genesis 15, is God alone walks through it. The covenant never is going to rest on Abraham's perfection. It's never going to rest on his ability to get it all perfectly. God says, I will take the consequence if I fail my part. But rather, Abraham finds what we call righteousness. Uh, righteousness means to be in right standing with, to be in right relationship with. Abraham doesn't find his righteousness in his perfection. He finds it in his trust in God's character, or what we call faith. That's all it is. Faith is trust in God's character. And so it starts really well. We have this, and covenant is so important to Bible, by the way, that the term we have for testament is an Old and New Testament, how we divide the Bible. That word testament is just a synonym for covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so things seem to be going really well. Abraham is an elderly man. He's got no children of his own, but God promises to him, hey, you're going to become a mighty nation. You're going to have your own land. And I'm going to use your descendants to bless all people on earth. Sounds like a pretty good promise. Uh, miraculously, God uh, uses Abraham and his wife Sarah to produce a child. Their descendants go on to have influence, to become a blessing to other people. But down the track, the, this family has become a people group and they're under the oppression of the mightiest empire of earth at the time, which is Egypt. And God, again, miraculously delivers them from the mightiest empire on earth and leads them out into freedom and into their own land. Not only that, but perhaps the most significant thing is he allows, again, a descendant named Solomon to build a temple at the centre of the city of Jerusalem in which God's presence himself dwells. Now, if you stop the story there, great. That's a good read. We've got the happy ending. But the problem is the descendants from there rebel against God again. That, that condition of the heart, that sin, grips them. It sways them and they start to worship other gods. They start to worship idols made out of stone and wood. They start to treat each other terribly. They do terribly bad things to each other. And again, this rebellion, this sin, causes further separation between Abraham's descendants and God. Now, God again doesn't give up. He sends prophet after prophet, people with his word to give to people to try and urge them and encourage them to come back to him, but the people by and large fail and don't listen to these prophets. And so finally, God allows them to receive the consequence of their actions and they're taken into captivity by foreign lands. Their cities are destroyed, the people are taken out if they're not killed. God's presence leaves the temple, and in fact, the temple itself is destroyed. And this is where Ezekiel starts. In the chaos and in the destruction, in the remorse, in the hopelessness, Ezekiel, what should be the best day of his life on his 30th birthday, where he should be in the temple in his priestly garments, serving God, 
Instead, he finds himself in a foreign land, essentially in a refugee camp, sitting by the side of a river, realizing all that he's lost. And it's in this moment he sees a vision of God, that God appears to him. Can I give you some encouragement today? I don't know what circumstance you're facing right now. I don't know how impossible it seems. I don't know how difficult life seems at the moment. But if God can appear to Ezekiel in that situation, he can appear to you today. He can speak to you today. He can turn things around today. And this is where this passage picks up. Let me read it again. Son of man, say to the Israelites, this is what you are saying. Our offenses and sins weigh us down and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we live? In other words, it's saying, okay, we've realized we've really messed up. What hope do we have now? And God says, as surely as I live, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? So in Ezekiel, we see that we have this problem of sin. We see the, the, how it has ravaged the world around them and the desperate need they have for, for hope. You know, I think my great-grandfather, when he was reading this passage, is probably reminded of the world around him and the chaos and the destruction and the hopelessness that he saw. Driving here today, it was like an eight-minute drive from my house to the motorway. Along the way, I, I mean, it was amazing. I saw some Samoan flags being uh, flown around. I was like, Talofa lava, let me, let me beep that horn. Bless all my neighbours. Uh, but you know, I also saw people standing at street corners with cardboard signs trying to get money to support themselves. I saw people protesting against foreign governments because of how people are being oppressed. There's still chaos and destruction in our world today. The ravages of sin, this, this, this condition of the heart, are still seen. But in this passage in Ezekiel, it doesn't end with this, this note on the watchman. But shortly after this, it has two more passages which are going to speak to the hope for Ezekiel then, for my great-grandfather 80 years ago, and for us today. And the first one, Ezekiel 34, God says, I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I personally will search them and bring them back. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. The sleek and the strong that's talking about the people who were oppressing others, he goes, I'll destroy them. I will shepherd the flock with justice. I will lead the people in righteousness. It's a promise of Jesus to come. It's a promise of a shepherd who would not just stand back, but would come to earth in human form and would show us how to live, how to glorify God, how to live a right life. He would exemplify for us. He was, you know, Jesus kind of never did the expected thing. He saw value where no one else did. He prioritized the people who seemed to be the least important. Where things seemed like a full stop because of death or sickness, situation, mistakes that people had made, Jesus never saw a full stop, he saw a comma. He saw an opportunity for a new sentence, for a new part of a sentence to begin. Uh, Jesus taught ways that completely contradicted the ways of sin. He talked about forgiveness. He talked about not allowing anger to, to rule us. He talked about so many ways in which we could live in a way that is different from the way of sin. And Jesus inhabited and became this shepherd for us. But it doesn't end there. You see, just not long after that in Ezekiel 36, God also gives this promise. 
He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. That heart that's ravaged by that sinful condition that you can't escape, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, a heart that will respond. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Not just a promise for a new heart, but a promise that he would give us his spirit to live within us, to help us, to transform us, and to lead us into righteousness. And like I said, these promises are fulfilled 600 years later. The ultimate gift, the ultimate conclusion of all this was Jesus' death on the cross. In doing so, he paid the punishment for every sin, cleansing us and qualifying us to receive his spirit, to lead us and guide us in this new life. And it is this moment, it is Jesus' incredible selfless sacrifice that sparks the gospel, that sparks the church, that sparks the movement that um, is responsible for us being here today. So even though Ezekiel sat there in what seemed like the end of the world, the end of time, yet in this moment, God speaks to him about the future to come. This is the unfolding story. That all throughout this book, all throughout these accounts, what we see is that there are people who along the way discover this God and God keeps intervening and speaking and responding and reaching out to the point of bringing Jesus and into the promise that we can have this new life, this new heart in him. But it doesn't end there. You see in Ezekiel, uh, at, the end of the book of, at the end of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has one final vision that he writes down. And in that vision, he's taken to a place where there is a dead land, dead water, no life. And a stream comes from this vision of this heavenly temple of God's presence. And this trickle, this stream, becomes a mighty river that brings new life. And it's a picture of the Garden of Eden restored for humankind. It's a promise of the eternity to come that we don't have to, we are not subject just to the circumstances of this life, but there is an eternity beyond this life that is waiting for us. You know, I don't know exactly how this passage of Scripture spoke to my great-grandfather. I've done my best, my best detective work to try to figure it all out, to try to think about what went through his mind, but the revelation that in the midst of this chaos and heartbreak, even in the midst of this book of Ezekiel, that there is a God who's faithful to respond to us, who continues to reach out to us, somehow gripped him. And it's funny, Ezekiel's a book of the Bible I've read a couple of times in my life. I understood, the, from a head perspective, I understood what was going on. But because of that inscription he wrote 80 years ago, God's spoken to me through it afresh. How has he spoken to me through it? He's spoken to me that even when the situation looks absolute worst, he can appear at any moment. He's reminded me that my hope is not in my ability to get things perfect, but in the fact that he transforms and cleans the heart. It's spoken to me that there is still a call and still a need for watchmen and watchwomen who will not just 
go along with whatever's happening in the day, but we'll stand watch for what God is doing and to speak to people and encourage them to put their trust in God. You know, this is why we need this unfolding revelation because it's not just stories of back then, it's a story of how we can find ourselves today in what he's doing. Our God is still speaking, he's still acting. Your story is part of God's greater story. And by reading his word, we locate ourselves. We locate his character and we locate his plans for our lives. You know, Romans 15, verse 4 to 6 says this, speaking of scripture, for everything that was written in the past, everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. If you're lacking a bit of hope this week, can I encourage you to jump into the Bible, jump into the Gospel of Mark, See the people who Jesus came alongside who felt like their life was so restrained and their life was all spelt out for them and yet Jesus intercepted them in that moment. As we read scripture, we find endurance, we find hope. It goes on to say this, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is why we call it the living word. It's not a dusty historical account of the past, but it is still today a contemporary revelation of who our God is and how he speaks to us. It informs our stories. As I opened the book of Ezekiel this week, God met me in those pages. He reminded me again of how good he is, that nothing is impossible and he'll do the same for you. You know, the, my one prayer for this series over these last two weeks is not that we'd be able to cover every single moment of the Bible. It's not that I'd be able to answer every possible question that we could have in the Bible, but rather, hopefully today, you're encouraged and inspired that God will meet you in these pages. He'll meet you in these pages. He'll give you hope and encouragement for today. He'll reveal himself afresh. And our team have done an amazing job of putting together a website. It's on the screen behind me, lifeandz.org slash Bible, with a whole bunch of resources. There are videos on there about what the Bible is. There's videos on how to go deeper in your Bible reading. There's information on translations. There's suggested reading plans. There's a whole bunch of resources. I really encourage you to check that out. But church, it starts with just opening the Bibles for ourselves. It starts with opening and expect, being expectant for how God will speak to us. If you're wondering how on earth can he do that, can I encourage you to come out tonight. I'll be talking with a few friends about how we can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit through Scripture. But what we're going to do is we're going to sing this song. I'd love you to stand at every campus, wherever you are. If you're online, why don't you stand with us? We're going to sing this song, Same God. And this song speaks about the fact that the God who encountered everyone in the Old Testament and the New Testament is the same God who is available for us today. The, the God who brought Lazarus back to life, the God who restored the woman who was accused of adultery, the God who spoke to Jacob and Mary and Abraham, ordinary people, and spoke their future and a new hope into them is the same God who's available to us today. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna sing this song together. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how incredibly good you are. God, I pray that as we open your pages, God, it would not be dead text, but God, we would understand it is your living word that we would understand who you are and how we can walk with you. And Jesus, we would walk forward in your grace and your love. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast. We trust that you were encouraged by this powerful message. You always have a place to call home here at Life. And we invite you to join us for our Sunday services at any of our Auckland campuses. If you're not in Auckland, then check us out, Church Online, wherever you are in the world. Just head to lifenz.org or download the Life app to stay connected and find out more.